Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Hello everybody! Hello everyone! And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. We should take it in turns when we say that. Should we? Hey! Everybody? No, hey, kids, comics. All oh, right. Hey, kids, comics. Does that work? Is that our new bit? It is, yeah. <laughs> it could be like that that high five show. Oh, yeah, I used to like that. You, you, the, the I, I wonder why chicks, you like The Australian that, yeah. chicks were, were quite attractive, weren't they? Mm. And they have that cat that talked, chat. Did they? Yeah. Do you know the weirdest thing, one of the weirdest things we ever saw when we were in America? Right. In, they had high five, but they'd refilmed it. With American people. For, well, they, they did similar lazy town as well. Yeah, and you're like, well, what have you done that for? The Australian chicks were sexy. Why, <laughs> why have you done this? You're not exposing your, your, your parents to the awesomeness that is Australian women. You're not making it tolerable to yeah. parents. I mean, the American chicks may have been lovely as well, but I remember just being disgusted that they got rid of the Australian girls. <laughs> and I changed the channel. But you know the second weirdest thing? Go on. Teletubbies dubbed into American. That was so weird. <laughs> that sounds was actually, it? Yeah. Do you not remember this? Nope. When we were channel surfing in the villa, I, yeah. I came across Telepubbies. And it was a, it was the same show. Yeah. All the dunnies dub it so the guy who into the same saying, language. Hello, what are you doing, Tinky Winky? Yeah, but it was it was an American bloke. It was weird, because it was the same baby in the sun going, <laughs> it, did, it was the same Did the same baby show. laugh in an American accent? No, 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 they'd left that bit alone. Right, okay. They'd left that bit. That bit was perfectly fine. So they cut around the corners then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Do they still talk stupidly? Well, the, the, no, the Teletubbies weren't dubbed. So, so it was just the guy that was dubbed? Yeah. Right, okay. But the Teletubbies were still, oh, and it was still right, the okay. same voice. Did they dub Nunu? I don't think they dubbed <laughs> the Nunu, no. And the Burr. That, oh God, that scared really. you rigid when you were a kid. Yeah. Anyway, we're not a Teletubbies podcast. If we were. Or a High Five podcast, in that way. Um, we're I, wonder not, if, I wonder if there are any Teletubbies podcasts. I would imagine there's a Teletubbies podcast. Tinky Winky, I would imagine, <laughs> has a Teletubbies podcast. For obvious reasons. <laughs> yes. Gay icon that he is. So I would imagine. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tinky Winky's a gay icon. Because <laughs> everyone pounced upon Tinky Winky. <laughs> pounded him. Everyone pounced upon Tinky Winky because he carried a handbag. And Tinky Winky was fine with this. So he was, well, yeah, so he was obviously gay because he carried a handbag. And then man bags came in. Right, okay. And I was like, he was obviously just ahead of the curve, <laughs> yeah. man, with his man bag. He was a trendsetter, was Tinky Winky. Was he the one who had the stick on his head? Oh, God, I don't remember. You used to have all the Teletubby dolls. Yeah. You had all of them. Tinky Winky, Dipsy, Dipsy La La, Poe. I always just mix them up with the Spice Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Which one 
would you shag? Was a, a popular refrain in the nineties, and I was like, which was tele- it which Teletubby would I shag? Is that not just wrong? Turns out they were talking about the Spice Girls, and I was getting them mixed up. Because oh, right, okay. understandably, how I would mix <laughs> Poe up with with Baby Spice. It's fair, yeah. I, I think that's perfectly understandable. Anyway, what's happened this week? Oh, they released trailers for Hellblazer and The Flash. It's, it's Constantine. Constantine. Not to be confused with Constantine, the movie Constantine. Isn't it? Constantine, yes. yes. It, uh, I thought they both looked pretty good. You're down on both of them, eh? I don't mind I don't mind John Constantine, it's just the rest of the show I'm not fond of. Yeah, he, well, you've only seen a trailer. And from what I've seen in the trailer, I might as well have seen the pilot. No, that was just the Flash. If I'd known, if I'd Constantine known, as well. well then I didn't think Constantine was that long. It was only about a minute and no, a half. I thought they gave a lot away in it. But the Flash one was five. If I'd known it was five minutes, I wouldn't have watched it. Whoever's editing these trailers is doing a crap job. If you think about it, TV episodes are now only thirty-nine to forty minutes long. Yeah, and they've just shown us a five-minute trailer for the entire. Yeah. yeah. So like you've seen, you've probably seen most of the pilot though in shorthand. You could probably piece together. The yeah. entire pilot episode from that five-minute trail. Movies don't have five-minute trailers, do they? Yeah, I don't think. I thought they looked alright. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Hey, you want fries with that? Constantine made me laugh in places. His line delivery of "oh bollocks" was funny. Yeah, he did it. He did a very good job with that. The oh, look at me. She did it. Yeah, and so he was. He was quite impressive. Oh, he's fine. It's just the rest of the show. I'm willing to give it benefit of the doubt for the time being and I thought the Flash looked okay not 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 sold on the costume when you see it in live action I still think the 90s yeah. one was better could be a dude with the being a bit redder and there were certain scenes that it looked like he'd, his emblem had fallen off that's shoddy workmanship isn't it <laughs> he used it as a minor inconvenience he did use it as a minor inconvenience just threw it over weather wizard <laughs> and then he was trapped in it and I cannot generate weather from inside this flash emblem oh he creates the tornado inside the flash emblem and defeats himself that would be cool so you think the story arc's going to be flashpoint and the death of his mum and all that stuff well, from what we've seen I don't like that origin how they reworked it <clears throat> well, you only saw the trailer how have, how have they reworked it because he got home from school yeah. his dad was being arrested and his mum was already dead right from what we saw he only found out after the, the rebirth that it was hmm. reverse flash from what we just saw he knows it was um, reverse yeah, he flash because he saw reverse flash do it but we know that from Arrow anywhere but yeah but you don't watch Arrow no but, but I, I watch Arrow I don't like that reworking because right. if you take a step back and think about it it doesn't work as well because think of the impact it had what, that he goes through his entire life thinking his dad did this? Yeah. Even though he doesn't believe it. Yeah. Which he doesn't in Flash Rebirth, does he? He never believed his dad did it. Whereas in that... But he didn't know. Yeah. Whereas in this, he he's, knows he, he watched did Reverse it. Flash yeah. kill his mum. Well, he, that was in Arrow, that he yeah. saw who did it, but he didn't see who did it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He saw the guy that did it. Um, I think they look quite good. I'm, I'm uh, moderately optimistic about both of them. Like willing to give them a go. It actually looked like he was having fun being the Flash. Yeah. And suddenly I was watching it going, are you sure this is a DC property at the minute? You saw the colour of his costume. And yeah, I thought it wasn't red enough. It wasn't red. It's kind of a burgundy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really work that, to be honest with you. Whatever. Anyway, should we do some emailage? Mm-hmm. Should we delve into the email sack? Our sack is backed up and we feel the need to release some pressure. On that sack. Okay. That is backed up. David Gutierrez is the first person that we are offering some relief to. <laughs> Leyland's. <laughs> Hello, David. 
Thank you for reviewing Flash Rebirth. It's like we plan this stuff. It is, yeah. Isn't it? I wasn't fond of the news of Barry's return to the DCU after growing with Wally and wanted to stay away from what I felt was an unnecessary turn of character that appeared more relevant dead than alive. Even after things didn't work out with a further aged Bart in the one year later Flash title and Wally's returning with his powered kids, I still didn't want to see Barry back. When Jeff, hey, I miss the 70s and 80s, Johns engineered Barry becoming Flash again, I wanted no part of it. I still don't, so thanks for saving me from reading Rebirth. <laughs> You're very welcome. We read crap comics so you don't have to. <laughs> oh, I didn't think Flash Rebirth was crap, to be honest with you. After, after reading all these emails, am I the only one who liked Barry coming back? I think you're the only one who was of an opinion that you didn't care, which probably helped a great deal. I didn't care. I prefer Barry to Wally. See, I think the thing, though, is most of us have grown up and watched Wally grow up. He is one of the few characters that did grow. But I grew up with Jon Stewart and Wally West, and I still prefer Barry and Hal and Barry. In Justice League Unlimited, the cartoon, which was what primarily we watched when you were little, is Wally the Flash in that, or is it Barry? No, it's Wally. Is it? Yeah. Right. Because I don't remember him ever confirming or denying, unless I just didn't see that episode. No, I'm pretty sure. Because I haven't seen them all, because that's not been released on DVD over here has it worn a home video <laughs> who obviously don't want my money hmm. anyway Dave's email continues as for Van Skeever's art I think I agree with young Michael hey. oh, he's just not going to fit through the door now. <laughs> he is better suited for a title that requires a little less fluidity in its action I think his greatest strength often works against him that being his hyper detailed art I find it so busy it often confuses the eye because it lacks a focal point there might be a figure in the foreground of greater import but as she he is just rendered as the backgrounds the eye can't tell where to go also thank you again for covering books I'd otherwise not read this is not sarcasm. Great coverage of Rockworld and its Return of the King-like endings. I may check this out based solely on your review. Looking forward to those 70 shows. Well, I hope you're still looking back, back at them yeah. and thinking that was okay. Just okay Just shows. Okay. We did okay. Yeah, we did all right. You never want to toot your own horn, do you? <laughs> Especially when you've got a backed-up sack. You just don't want that. Doesn't tooting your own horn help when you have a backed up side? I would imagine that it would. Who knows? Thanks, David, for emailing in. Very much appreciated. Chris Franklin's emailed in. What's all this rot? I do like imaginative subtext headings. It always amuses me. Hello, Leylands. I bloody well thought I bloody write this bloody email in a bloody authentic British accent, according to bloody comic book writers. Bob's your uncle, Fenny's your head. Apples and pears. At the apples and pears, Gavna, Red Elephant and Castle, call blimey, Terry and Arthur. <laughs> Stick a pony in my pocket, I'll get a suitcase from the van. You hear me, Gavna? Because if you want the best ones and you ain't got questions, then brother, I'm your man! He's going to carry on quoting the rest I'm of I'm just going to carry on doing only fools and asses, yeah. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. <laughs> and one, we're going to wake up to a rendition of only fools and asses. So stick a pony in your pocket. Should we do it? I, I, I don't know all the you words. Never, you don't know all the words to only fools and asses. It's only run for like 400 years. And I've only seen the episode they show every bloody Christmas. <laughs> what, the Batman and Robin one? The one with the baby. Oh, right, yeah, they do show the one where Dell has his baby quite a lot, don't they? Anyway, we've done it again to somebody's email. <laughs> and we've done it to a person who probably has no idea where Only Fools and Horses is. Yep. Do we? Okay, fair enough. 
Uh, Chris continues, I enjoyed your Rockworld episode, despite having little to no interest in the subject. It's a testament to the Leyland charm, that would be us, that I would eagerly listen to an episode focused on something I'd never even heard of. Having said that, the story actually sounds pretty damn good. I haven't followed Swamp Thing or Animal Man in any way for decades, but these stories don't feel totally alien to me, unlike many rebooted concepts of late. I did get a late 80s, early 90s, Days of Future Past Envy type vibe off this, but that's not a bad thing, really. It felt like the final few episodes of an Animal Man Swamp Think TV series, with the questionable finale being the season ender, and the two follow-up issues being the debut of next season. Well, um, I honestly think you deserve all the credit for that. Oh, thank you. Because Rock World was yours. You wrote it. I just read them. Mm-hmm. I just read a bunch of comments for that one. It was brilliant. <laughs> Great two weeks. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what like for me. <laughs> that's what it's like for you normally. Yeah. Well, that's right. I'm thinking if you go to the university or whatever, I'll just carry on doing the show <laughs> and just pretend that you're the. <laughs> All I do is literally get you to phone in your <laughs> half of the show. You guys are just going to sit there. What do you think, Michael? Oh, really? Okay, let's carry on. And then I'll send you the tape. He's going to start cracking up and start talking to yourself. Or I send you the recording, you record your bits. Okay. In the gaps (laughs) that I leave. Uh, Chris continues, I think the most enjoyable part of the show was you two arguing over whether it was a true (laughs) finale or not. Maybe it was a status quo change. Oh, Oh, well played, Mr. Franklin. (laughs) Well played. Uh, Chris just closes up by telling us we really need to read James Robinson's Starman run as it skirts the edges of the regular DC with a slight vertigo feel. Loads of people keep mentioning Starman to us, yeah. don't they? Alas, it looks like we may not have time now. Pip Pip Cheerio and Chim Chimmery. <laughs> Chim Chimmery, Chim Chimmery, Chim Chim Cheery. Chris, thank you very much, Chris. We appreciate that was funny. I like that. That, that. that amused me no end. You click on that verb. Ah, no. I, did, I get it wrong every time. Our next email is the mighty Sean Engel. It is. Hello, Sean. Definitely not a couple of rotters. Hello, the swamp buddies. See what I did there? Yeah, I agree. It's not that clever. Thanks, <laughs> Swamp thing and buddy bacon. Yeah, it's it good. good it's clever. I like that. It's been a while. Pausing to allow Andy to inject with some singing of stained, if he wishes. <laughs> It's been a while. I don't know, rest. Do you know rest? I, I don't. You know stained, your mum had them. Not literally, obviously. <laughs> okay. Not being a groupie. <laughs> she had the album, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> this is just going wrong tonight. I thought I'd write in with a few thoughts on your latest episode concerning Animal Man Swamp Things crossover rot world. By when the new 52 hit, I picked up the first couple of issues of Animal and Swamp Thing on your recommendations and thought they were crap. That's not what he says. He just says they weren't for me. We're very apologetic that you spent money on something that we thought was okay and didn't like it. I do apologise for that. Certainly the storytelling was decent and the art was passable, but even despite the connectivity of the two books, I just couldn't get into them. I suppose it was due to the actual vertigo feel of both of them, with the first issue of Animal Man ending with Maxine surrounded by reanimated animal corpses and Swamp Thing beginning the mass death of birds, bats and fish. It also might have been due to me not having much of a connection to Buddy that made me not care so much about his character, so I dropped the books. But I continued following The Walking Dead, so I can only assume the graphic nature of the comics wasn't the main reason for me not enjoying them. After listening to your coverage, I'm wondering if I should have given the books a bit more time to grow on me, slight pun intended, as the Rock World story sounded really fascinating. Yes, the idea of a dystopian future caused by time travel is somewhat cliché. As you know, there will be a giant reset button pushed at the end of the story. But the dramatic elements that came out of the tale, the deaths of Abby and Cliff especially, really tugged at my heartstrings and made me feel like I should seek these issues out if I find them in the dollar bins. But on to some feedback about some of the questions you had, specifically about the Green Lantern. Medf- 
Phil. He is one of the, for lack of a better term, third string Green Lanterns. We have the primary ones, mostly the Earth-based lanterns of Hal, John, Guy, Kyle, and to some extent Alan. Then you have the secondary ones like Kilowog, Toare, and Sinestro, which people generally know about and even got speaking roles in the Green Lantern films, showing the importance of the variety of the core. Then you have these third stringers that a lot of readers will recognise, but unless you've been reading the Green Lantern books for a long time, you just can't place their names. Medphil actually appeared in a very early issue of Green Lantern, Volume 2, drawn by Gil Kane, who had a fondness for drawing weird aliens and structures. He resides alongside other lesser-known lanterns as Chaselon, a gem-like lantern that looks like a 20-sided dice. Oh, I know that one. Do you? Yeah. Larvox, a single-eyed slug with multiple tentacles. I know that one. Do you? Yeah. Gallius Zed, a giant mad ball with arms and legs, and my favourite, a Manita, a mushroom-based lantern who spoke incredibly slowly and was chosen because of her cosmic awareness. My thought was that Hal recruited her after he ingested one of her kin <laughs> on one of the grooviest trips ever. <laughs> Regardless of how goofy these characters may have looked or seemed, they allowed the Green Lantern Corps to actually feel very diverse, rather than having all the alien races be essentially humanoids with different ears or spoons on their foreheads. <coughs> Deep Space Nine! <coughs> but having Medfield and obvious plant-based Green Lantern take up the mantle of Sector 2814 seems to work for the story. It did, didn't it? It did. Now that we knew who that was, well, you know, that made sense. During editing... I did look up who Medfield was oh, right. he popped up and uh, okay so he was in it before fair enough I'll, I'll let it slide I won't edit it or anything no one will notice <laughs> people notice dude yeah. people notice I still feel like Chip should have gotten a shout out though I liked him yeah I liked Chip is he, isn't he, is he still didn't he get, alive? Yeah, didn't he get run over by a car or something? I don't, I don't know. I think he did. Anyway. If, if the Red Lanterns have a, have a cat, then I'm sure the Green Lanterns can have chip. Maybe they brought him back for the New 52. We don't know. We've not, we've not read any post-New 52 Green Lantern, have we? No, because we keep meaning to read the rest of Jeff. Yeah, because we've got all of the Green Lantern trades on here. I actually quite enjoyed them for the we most part. stopped with Brightest Day. Agent Orange was the last trade paperback I've got, we've but then got it's... Blackest Night, isn't it? Which you've which, got as a hardcover. Yeah, and then I've got all the Brightest Day, but not the Green Lantern Brightest Days. Mm, fair enough. Anyhow, continues Sean, as always, I'm loving the show, and have to admit, Michael has really grown as a podcaster. He's yeah, like fungus. Over the years, from his humble beginnings of just being the passive observer in the earliest episodes, to a plotter and creator of some well-produced recent episodes. It will be a sad day when Hey Kids comes to its inevitable end, but it has definitely left its mark on the landscape of the podcasting world. Take care. Sean Engel. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Thank you, Sean. And I suppose that we should address that very elephant, should we not? Yeah, bugger off, Dumbo. Young Michael has been offered a position, grade dependent. Oh, I'll get the grades. Yeah, you're confident about that, are you? At Manchester University. Or is it the University of Manchester? Manchester College. Whatever, I get confused. Yes. There's about three of them. Well, we're American now. Yeah, we're, yeah. Is that how it works? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm moving away to college from college. Yeah. <laughs> how does that work then, <laughs> I don't quite understand. Anyway, so, the, the tentative plan at the moment is that when he go, Because you are... Are you planning on going? Yes. So you're planning on leaving? Yes. And living in the halls? Yes. Knowing you will have to get a job then? Yes. Oh, Forbidden okay. Planet, Travelling Man. <laughs> Those three oh, record stores oh, on the oh, same oh, street. Well, as long as you're aware of the fact. So, the plan is, dependent on his grades, then, then you're going, aren't you? Yeah. So as of September the 17th, yeah. Michael will be off doing whatever it is college students do. And at that point, we must sadly bid farewell to the show on a weekly basis. However, this is not sad news, <laughs> is it? 
it's, just, it's not. Because with the news that you were doing this, I was on fire <laughs> planning out right. How we, many episodes can I do on my own? No, 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 no. It's nothing <laughs> to do with that. What it was was it was a very definite right. The show now has a finite lifespan. How much cool stuff can we get into that <laughs> finite lifetime? And then you went ahead and picked those. And then I went ahead and I, I've, I've scribed out every single episode in between now and Michael Gowen, which was up to episode 198. Yeah. And I said, we cannot end on episode 198, dude. That ain't happening. Mm. So at some point over summer, we're going to have to double up somewhere to potentially come up with two extra episodes. Um, obviously, uh, there's still a few gaps in the schedule, but I, I've now planned out through through to episode 200, yeah. which may be the last regular episode, depending on the future and grade. And, There'll and be Christmas like. episodes. We will. We have said we will bring the show back. We will do a series of reunion movies that are not as well received <laughs> as the series. And uh, and then you'll realise, wait, my space 1999 one was a hit. Why don't I just ditch Michael? <laughs> Why don't I just ditch Michael and do it myself? Yeah. And then, you know, so that's that's the current plan for people that do keep asking. People do keep emailing and saying, so go on, what's happening? <laughs> we, we don't want it to end, but we want to know what's going on with Michael. So that's where we currently lie. Should he flunk and not get decent grades, we'll be around for another year. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get up to episode 250. Yes. Which is another good round number to end on. It is, yeah. Isn't it? As long as it's a round number, you don't care what my grades no, no. are. I know, we couldn't end on 198. <laughs> yeah. I, I worked it all out, and I went, what a, no way! <laughs> if you didn't count it wrong, it really was the two. No, 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 it, it, it was 198. I double-checked my figures. All right. I made a list, I counted it twice. You, you tripled them last time, and I, you still I, I still got episode 100 wrong, yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> Yes. Anyway, we've got one more email in the... Actually, we've got a couple of emails, but we'll just do one more in the bulging sack. Davis Samora. Hello, Davis. Michael and Andy. Michael, you're always first in my book. What a creep. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Detective Comics by Manipal and Buccaletto. You both need to check that out. Just started issue 30. Between that, Snyder's Batman, the Bruce Tim, Darwin Cook short, and Batman Arkham Knight. It's looking to be a great 75th anniversary for the Dark Knight. Wish we could have said the same for Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Davis. Well, that, that's very true. They do seem to be um, pushing the boat out for Batman a lot more than they did. Batman's everyone's favourite, though. For Superman, though. You, some, you ask someone out on the street who their favourite superhero is, Batman. Uh, yeah, no, but... See, Superman should be the granddaddy, shouldn't he? Yeah. In my opinion. But, yeah, I will, I see... See, the flip side of that is it, it does it does irritate me a bit when there are a, a number of people who will downplay Batman at the minute to upplay Superman. So let's celebrate Superman 76. But the bottom line is, Batman is just as important as Superman. In the comic book firmament, he is... Yeah. He, he and Superman, to me, are top dog in the DC universe. Even though Batman only exists because Superman does. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, but he, he's ultimately gone on to be the top see it's like it's the same with Marvel when Spider-Man isn't number one at Marvel something's wrong as far as I'm concerned yeah I mean I can live with X-Men being there but X-Men are only there because of the direct sales market Mm. Spider-Man's popular with everybody as is Batman as was Superman although Superman was more popular with the newsstand audience than the comic book market yeah so that's that's my thinking anyway I think Batman is just as important as Superman he deserves his 75th but I think maybe Superman should have got a little bit more than he got Mm. although he got a big movie Batman's not got a movie, is he? He's sharing one. Yeah, but it won't be on his 75th birthday, will it? Speaking of which, have you seen the leaked image? It wasn't leaked. Was it not? Zack Snyder let it out, man. Right, okay. So it wasn't leaked. Yeah, it's 
It looks alright. It's the Dark Knight costume, yeah, but black. Pretty much. Well, you don't know, that's a black and white picture. So it, it probably there's a, it's, the film's probably going to be black and white. Yeah, for, well, if somebody has photoshopped it to be like a dark blue cape yeah. and cowl, and it does look pretty cool. I've seen it photoshopped for Zurana. Yeah. <laughs> Have you really? Yes, I have. That's my personal favourite. <laughs> oh, dear. I'd be annoyed if that's not in the film. That's not going to be in the film. It's going to no. be a black cape and cow. It's going to be a black costume. Everything's going to be black. Wonder Woman, red, red, blue and silver. No, it's just all grey. Really? I've, I'm taking the mic. Oh, right. So you think all of that Batman... Ca- so how does the black bat stand out against a black background? You yeah. know, like it didn't in the, the Nolan movies. Like the, the Spider-Man 3 symbiote. Kind of mm. like that. Oh, that's a bit cat that then, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing. That's fair enough. We'll just do another short one. It's from a new listener. Oh, that's a shame. We've got 16 now. He's a new listener. <laughs> just as we're going to knock it on the head. Yeah. <laughs> they still have our old episodes. <laughs> yeah, there's 175 old episodes, David. Go and check them out. They're hours of entertainment. <laughs> Well, I say entertainment. Hours of listening... Ple- well, there's, there's, I say pleasure. There's hours of entertainment and more hours. <laughs> there's hours of entertainment over on Two True Freaks and then there's us. <laughs> when you listen to everything else, go and listen to our show. Hello, Andrew and Michael. My name is David Jeffries. Last night, I finished listening to every episode of your show. Oh. Well. Oh, well. Never mind. Them again. Yeah. And I wanted to write and tell you how much I enjoyed it. Well, thank you, David. We, I do appreciate that. I discovered your show indirectly from the Aquaman Shrine. Shrine? I don't know what a Shrine is. <laughs> from the Aquaman Shrine. On that website, I read about a podcast called Tom vs. Aquaman. On that podcast, the host talks about another show called DJ's Comics Cavalcade. I listened to all that show, and he talks about appearing on Views from the Longbox. I listened to all the views and heard both of you and your wonderful promo. Now I want to say thank you for getting me through many otherwise boring nights at work. <laughs> You're very welcome, David. It seemed a very circuitous route to get to us. <laughs> but you got that. <laughs> but all roads lead... To Hey Kids Comics. <laughs> Do they? Yes. It's like every road leads to Superman. Yeah. <laughs> In Michael Bailey's head. Yeah. Everything's all about Superman. And he's right as well. And he's right, yeah. <laughs> Bottom line. Yeah, all things considered. So, uh, well, thank you, David. We appreciate that. And uh, the fact that you've listened to all of them already. Not really a lot I can do about that. <laughs> we'll try and churn out 25 more low-quality episodes. <laughs> you know, we don't want people getting spoiled by thinking oh, that yeah. we're going to aspire to mediocrity any more than we already do. So. Anyway, yeah, we're going to have a break. We'll play a promo. I have no idea what it is at this point. I'll decide tomorrow when I'm editing. And then when we come back, it's the penultimate chapter of those 70 shows with appearances by Warlock of the Adam Variety, Commandy, the Last Boy on Earth, and Ghost Rider Motorcycle Hero. Kind of a hero. Maybe not a hero. Yeah. I say hero. Motorcycle whiner. Motorcycle whine. Yeah, that works well. Is it better than being a motorcycle whino? (laughs) We'll be right back. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. 
The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. Science fiction and the supernatural were big in the 70s. Over at DC, Jack Kirby was blowing minds with his expansive fourth world epic, a serialised story originally designed to have a beginning, middle and end that was sadly curtailed by lack of interest within the company and without by the readers. The Witching Hour, House of Mystery and Unexpected were selling well. Marvel launched the black and white magazine line of various different writers experimented with cosmic stories. Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain Marvel and movie tie-ins such as Planet of the Apes and Logan's Run kept Marvel's experimentation factor sky high. However, none were as wacky or as out there as Jim Starlin's Warlock. Starting in Strange Tales, issue 178, cover dated February 1975, Who is Adam Warlock? launched Starling's strange and experimental series that would, over its run, challenge readers with Starling's fascination with institutions, from the church to corporations, and his deep distrust of the stifling of creativity. Starling crafted a story where he took Adam Warlock, a space-wandering Jesus Christ analogue created by Roy Thomas, on a cosmic journey where, after failing to save the life of a young lady being pursued by armed soldiers from the Universal Church of Truth, he tries desperately to right his wrong. Using the soul gems, he revives her long enough to learn that the mysterious leader of the church is his own future self, now named the Magus. The soul gem, embedded in his forehead, was also slowly causing Warlock to doubt his own sanity as it absorbed the spirits of his enemies. As Warlock searches for the Magus, he teams up with Pip, a cigar-chomping lecherous troll, and Gamora, a green-skinned assassin, and it was probably the first time at Marvel a creator was offered so much creative control, partly because Stalin was writing, drawing, and colouring the strip, and partly because it was such a low-selling book no one really cared what he did. This freedom would be short-lived, as Stalin's criticism of organised religion saw editorial take a more critical eye upon his work. I never read any Adam Warlock. I still, to this day, have never read any Captain Marvel, including the graphic novel The Death of Captain Marvel. Largely, this was because, despite me liking sci-fi, I wasn't really into Marvel's cosmic stuff as a kid. Some of it may have been down to availability. I don't recall this being printed in any of the UK mags I read, although some of it may have later seen print in Star Wars Weekly, I don't remember. It was only a few years ago when I found all six issues of the Warlock Special Editions in the cheap bin at the Comic Mart that I picked this up. In these comics, Sterling's art shined. The paper stock was thicker and better than normal comics of the time, and the colours are vibrant. It splits different stories in half to make the page count, but nothing is edited, and if you have all six issues, it doesn't matter too much anyway. I sat down to read them and was very impressed by how well they held up and by how dense and engrossing the stories were. But the most interesting issue to me was, by far, A Thousand Clowns. Originally appearing in Strange Tales 181, cover dated August 1975 and drawn by Sterling and Alan Weiss, we see Adam Warlock, our gold-skinned blondadonis hero, lying on the floor clutching his head in pain. A purple monster with red eyes, not Barney, and a large toothless grin burrs down upon him. Alright, maybe it is Barney. And the clown dressed in a dinner jacket and a large red bow tie says, I warned you, Warlock! There's no escaping from the madness monster! And there's the original cover, though. What do you think of that cover? Um, it's... I don't know. It's a cover. Yeah. 
Is that what you were about to say? I think it's alright. The right. clown is still quite creepy. The clown is very, very creepy, but clowns are creepy. They are. This is an established fact. I don't like them. No, you don't, do you? Clowns kill. Apparently. Clowns <laughs> crash. Yeah, apparently do, yeah. I, I think it's, it's an alright cover. But the, the purple monster is quite creepy because he's smiling but he's got no teeth. And he's burring down upon Adam Warlock who's lying on the floor going, My head is in my head! Like he's some... My head is in my head. Like he's some erstwhile John Malkovich. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we said being John Malkovich. Well, that's the cover. It was all right, wasn't it? Yeah, it was with it. It's, I mean, the cover of the special edition is a nice wraparound thing. Yeah. That we have. That's, that's very nice. I do like how uh, Thanos is just looking down on all these clowns out of his window. Oh, right, yeah. Thanos is up there on the balcony, isn't he? Like Romeo and Juliet. Is it Thanos? Thanos, we're up now, <laughs> Thanos. <laughs> that would be great if Thanos did Romeo and Juliet with the Magus. <laughs> oh, dearie me. The story was written and penciled by Jim Starlin, inked by Al Milgram, lettered by Tom Ozyasowski, Ozyasowski, Ozyuski, Tikuski, Tikuski, and edited by Len Wein. In a strange and macabre world of skull stalactites and floating colours, Adam Warlock wonders, well, how did I get here? Recent events caused him to absorb a demon into his soul gem, and this, in turn, was too much for his fragile mind to comprehend. Now, lost in a dimension that may be real or may be hallucinatory, who's to know? Feeling the rock beneath his feet, Adam Warlock decides that this is a reality, but not the reality. That's not entirely true, old faithful one, says a clown who appears from nowhere. Welcome to the land of the weirdest! The clown promises eternal contentment if only Adam will succumb to the ways of the land and give up his rebellious nature. Len Teens, a small manipulative creature, studies from afar and says now begins indoctrination. The clown tells Adam the first step to joy is the How to Look Happy Island, where Jan Hatrumi, a clown with a paintbrush, draws all over Adam's face to make him conform to the norm. Adam rejects this and is told, hey, no problem, if you want to make things hard on yourself... Elsewhere, Pip the Troll and Gamora are breaking into the Holy Palace to rescue Adam. Inside the mind of Adam Warlock, however, it's not going well for Lentines as Adam continues to rebel against the way things are. To show him the error of his ways, he is taken to a cross upon which is pinned a renegade clown. As other clowns hurl pies at his face, Adam is told that this renegade clown tried to book the system, began to question the way things are. Adam picks up two pies and knocks Len's two assistants unconscious. Len is furious and we see that Adam is in fact in a sensory input helmet that has been pumped with will-numbing drugs and yet is still managing to fight back. The matriarch appears and tells Len he's going about this all wrong. Portray the church as the underdog, she tells Len. Convince Adam there are a number of galaxy-spanning projects the church is working on that would benefit him and enable him to do good. Convince him of this... And he's ours. The matriarch leaves Len to it, saying that she wants results. Back in the land, Len shows Adam the greatest workforce in the galaxy. Adam sees the men hauling garbage in wheelbarrows and building towers of trash. When the tower collapses under its own weight, the workers start again. Life is a cycle, explains Len. You always end up just where you started. No further. Adam is having none of it. I want nothing to do with a world populated by clowns that waste their life building towers of rubbish, he says as he storms off. Amidst the rubbish, though, he spies a shiny object, Theamite, the most beautiful substance in the galaxy. Why is it in the junk pile? 
Oh, that, says Len. Someone keeps putting that in there when we're not looking. Adam roars with laughter. Diamonds! Diamonds amongst the garbage, he roars, and he pulls Len up and demands to know how to get the hell out. Len says only through the doorway of madness can an exit be found. Adam locates the door and enters, and inside is welcome to the realm of schizophrenia and madness, and inside a being with no soul. Adam realises this is a battle of the mind, and the being represents his fear, his trepidation, all the dark parts of his own personality. Accepting this allows Adam to accept different viewpoints, and the land disappears. He opens his eyes, and he is back in the chamber, Pip and Gamora having reached him. However, the realisations he made in the land of how it is have made him quite insane, and Adam knows that whilst he may now have the knowledge to defeat the Magus, it may also destroy him. The Magus suddenly appears, telling Adam that he's already lost. From this point forth, Adam Warlock is powerless to prevent what is about to happen. Did that synopsis make any sense? As much as the story did. Alright, that's okay then. Alright, because I'm reading it back though going, does this does this sound as mad as I think it sounds? Because when I wrote it, it seemed to make perfect sense as a as a, a synopsis of this story. Mm. But reading it back then, I was just going, this is bad crazy. <laughs> uh, the story is dedicated to Steve Ditko, not only due to the Doctor Strange-style psychedelic backgrounds in the land of the way things are, but also, I suspect, due to Steve's creative struggles throughout his career and his staunch individuality. Splash Page is very Doctor Strange. Yeah. Very Ditko Doctor Strange, isn't it? The idea of Warlock questioning his sanity and that the soul gems are corrupting his mind is one of the threads that run through the entire series, and this is just the right mix of insane imagery and social commentary. The argument of editorial control versus creative freedom is something that has existed in comics for years at this point, but it seems that it was the 70s where people really started to want to push the envelope in their stories. Whether it was something in the water or the general cultural thing, I don't know, but movies and, to a lesser extent, TV were doing this as well. It's why I generally think that the 70s are such a fertile decade for the exploration and analysis of pop culture. The Land of the Way It Is is such an obvious commentary on Marvel at the time. Stan is portrayed as a clown, which is quite harsh. He says true believers as well. He, he says true believers quite a lot, yeah. doesn't he? Um, Ramita protects the house style. Len and Marv pillory the man who wanted to support creator freedoms. I thought that was Lentines. Len Ween. Lower Lentines is Stan Lee. Is it? It's an anagram of Stan Lee, yeah. Right, okay. Because John Hatrumi is an anagram of John Romita. Right, okay. So. I thought it was Len Ween. Well, it, it's Len Ween and Marv Wolfman who are throwing pies at Roy Thomas. Roy right. Thomas being presented as the person who supported creator rights at Marvel at that time. It's all very biting, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, it's I mean, Romita's paints over Warlock's face and adds a clown nose and face paint that just makes him look like everyone else does. Something Warlock rejects, saying he wouldn't be happy living such a life. We mentioned this in previous episodes, though. Mm. So this was quite timely. Where we've, we've come across pages where we've suspected Ramita has changed faces. Howard the Duck 16. Yeah. Remember, we were both like, that looks like a Ramita face to me. And um, Amazing Spider-Man 122, where it was heavily rumoured he redrew the yeah. last half of that book, but I've never heard anyone be this biting about Ramita. Mm. I mean, you know, people complain about Stan, but Stan's the boss. People bitch about the boss. It's just the way of things. But Ramita? That seemed like, you know, that seemed like kicking puppies, that. 
Yeah. John Romita has this reputation of being one of the nicest guys ever. That, and if he did redraw it, someone told him to. Yeah, essentially he was just doing what he was told to. Yeah. I mean, you could argue... I mean, I'm, I think there are times, there are documented times where he said no. Hmm. So, to portray him like this seemed a little bit unfair. I mean, Sean Howe's book, which I've referenced a lot in this 70s series, does point out that many of Marvel's writer and artists were mavericks who didn't listen to editorial. But even over at DC, they were redrawing Jack Kirby. Yeah. So to savage John Romita for doing this, you know, that just doesn't seem right, does it? The Gamora and Pip stuff is perfunctory to the main plot, which was why it got one line in the synopsis. They break in, fight a bit, find Warlock, that's it. Sterling has said that Pip was Jack Kirby, but given that Pip was frequently described as an immoral, self-serving and dishonest, I don't know that I'd take that as a compliment myself. <laughs> To be honest with you, but you know what I'd do. Uh, it is, as we've said, it's Len and Marv who are throwing pies in the face of Roy Thomas. Uh, but I've not been able to find an analogue anywhere for the matriarch. I don't know, because Jeanette Kahn was the boss at DC, but she wasn't the boss at DC yet. Yeah. And she's the only significant woman in a position of power on comics I can think of at this time. So I don't know if she's supposed to be an analogue of anyone particularly. Um, but I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, the diamonds in the garbage bit. Yeah. Come on. That, I, I, that I, was a bit precious. I, I loved his reaction as well. Diamonds amongst the garbage! <laughs> his, his dialogue was so poncy. He's Marvel's equivalent of Morpheus. Yeah, well, I think Sterling has said he is deliberately pompous. Hmm. So that's alright, fair enough. And I do really like that panel on the bottom of, well, our page 20. Yeah. That clown's face is hilarious, especially with the dialogue. <laughs> but that is the only way out. The only exit is through the doorway of madness. It's funny. It is. It is. It is. I mean, it's bitingly satirical, a little bit precious, but it is funny, you know. Uh, the story, Sterling freely admits, was inspired by the freewheeling lunacy of the Patrick McGowan series, The Prisoner. One of my favourite shows from the 60s ITC stable, The Prisoner is infamous for its final episode, which is one of the most back crazy hours of TV to ever err on a major network. Mm -hmm. Full of symbolism, social commentary and surrealism, but very little narrative coherence, it works simply because it's as mad as a bag of cats. Few shows could have gotten away with an ending like that, but The Prisoner did because the series defied expectations at every opportunity. Sterling tries something like that here. I don't think there's ever been a finer example in comics of biting the hand that feeds you than this issue. Dave Sim would try this in an issue of Spawn, but in that case he wasn't doing it from within. He was working for Image and Todd McFarlane, whose ideas of creative freedom were probably very different from Jim Sterling's. Sterling was doing this from within Marvel itself, a Marvel he presents as a purveyor of garbage with occasional and presumably accidental moments of greatness hidden within. He parodies Stanley as a clown and John Romita as a purveyor of homogenised pap. He has Marv Wolfman and Len Wein be depicted as company men, content to work with things the way they are, and Roy Thomas as the only representative of originality and creative freedom. To say this is savage and a little bit self-indulgent is a gross understatement. How did this get printed if he's slagging off everyone well, he works for? That, that's, that's a point that I have got in my notes. It, it does... I do find it a little bit precious to see yourself as the only bastion of 
creative quality and originality in the entire company. I mean, I've never heard anyone else complain about John Romita. But it, like you say, it does beg some questions. Is it possible that a company that is willing to allow its employees to lampoon itself like this may not be the evil face of conformity Sterling wishes to portray it as? Yeah. Is it ironic that Roy Thomas, who comes out of this quite well, hated this story? But Len Wein and Marv Wolfman quite liked it. And is it even more ironic, Sterling's problems with editorial wouldn't even begin until Jerry Conway took over as editor. He didn't know he had it as easy as this yeah. until Conway came in. And if you do dig a little deeper in the story, you can see Sterling isn't just parodying Marvel, but he's parodying all institutions that stifle its workers' freedoms and expressing that point of view from his own experience. But like you say, this ignores the point that Marvel let him publish this book. Maybe they were just humouring him. Oh, he said another story where he slags us off? (laughs) Well, I don't know if this was his his first. I mean, if you don't spot that Lentines and Jan Patrume are anagrams for for Lee and Ramita, which you didn't, did you, when you were reading it? I still got that. That's what I'm saying. You couldn't possibly fail to notice that he looks like Stan. Yeah. That was... It's very, very obvious that it, it's Stanley in these pages. The man who books the system looks exactly like Roy Thomas. He's not burying the lead. But for all this biting satire, let's not ignore the fact that Marvel let this go through mm. without changing it. I mean, it may be that they just didn't care, but it is implied in Marvel Comics The Untold Story that Sterling would wait until the very last minute to supply his finished work. So then they can't Which, change. yeah, it lessened the possibility that editorial would interfere with it. but So it's possible they're not being as magnanimous as I'm making them out to be. Mm. But the bottom line is Marvel's reprinted this numerous times without changing it. Yeah. And some of it does come across as a little bit arrogant. Stalin's the only one making diamonds in the garbage. Mm. But he could have been talking about, generally, the comics every now and again yeah. will make something of quality despite themselves. But with all of that aside... And we're not going to give you any answers to these questions, because that's not what this comic's about. Like The Prisoner, you make your own mind up whether you support Sterling's stance in this or whether you don't. That's entirely up to you. But it's a solid entry into the Warlock saga. It's a story that was well ahead of its time, but a story that could simultaneously be only told in the 1970s. It's overall themes of searching for one's own identity and questioning the nature of life and work. It's very touchy-feely. 70s idea, isn't it? Yeah. But wrapped up in a a pretty decent story with great art. I mean, kids would probably just lap this up as being a bit wacky and out, though, wouldn't they? These Adam Warlock stories are well worth checking out. Mm. I I thought this was really good. I don't think the rest of it could ever live up to my favourite line of dialogue. What? To escape from there, right, to give into madness itself. So you see, I am really quite insane. (laughs) Um, This was... A high point in in the run, yeah. But it, it it is it's wacky and back crazy all the way through, and it's popped out of its bloody staple. I blame you. Everyone does. Everyone blames you. Yeah. But so it's it is. I think that warlock stuff's really good. But I picked that because I wanted you to read it. What did you think of it? I I enjoyed it. You said it was out there, but it wasn't quite as out there as you kind of hyped it up to be. I've read some out there stuff. <laughs> that was pretty tame, man. Yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? The thing that influences other people outdoes. It tends the to be yeah, yeah, the stuff that follows it. Deathlock. Yeah, 
there was nothing actually wrong Deathlock in and of itself yeah. but the imitations have all taken it slightly further and I suppose it's the same with that I mean he's not actually breaking the fourth wall in that story but he kind of is but he's, yeah he's kind of offering a lot of commentary on what he thinks of the comics business yeah I like it as kind of like the flip side to the Howard, Howard the Duck story we did well that was another reason I picked it I thought it was a good counterpoint yeah. to Howard the Duck issue 16 but you didn't like Howard the Duck issue 16 it wasn't that I didn't like it it's just there's something about it it just didn't rub you it didn't rub your rhubarb yeah, never sure. rub another man's <laughs> rhubarb is the moral of this story so is it influential and does it stand up I thought it stood up very well the satire is biting and entertaining albeit a little obvious to adult eyes or like I said kids probably wouldn't get it and the story is fast paced and well told it's very well written and also a good read there's no wasted pages on splashes uh, each issue adds to the whole and gives the reader good value for money it's good stuff if you're in the mood mm. If you're in the mood for a preachy writer banging on about how mistreated he is, <laughs> it's good mood. If it catch you in, in that mood where you're right, stick it to the man, yeah. then you're in the right mood for it, are you? If you're ever of a mind to say, oh, quit whining, they're letting you write and draw what you want. Stop moaning about it. The fact that this gets published. Or if you've just taken a bag of mushrooms. Or if you've just taken a bag of mushrooms. So you, you kind of fall between the two stalls, really. Yeah. I can see as a pretentious college student, I would have let that up. Yeah. But was the rest of it as the pretentious? Rest of it, no, the rest of it's not as wacky as that. I, I just take it for like a Thanos cosmic story. Well, it is ultimately. That's yeah. what it becomes. But it does it does get to some pretty out there places. I recommend. I thought it was pretty damn good. I really did. If you're in the like I said, if you're in the mood for it, it's a good tale. So does that get a thumbs up for you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> But we'll have to wait till the end to see which is our preferred choice on this night. I know which mine is. Well, don't don't shoot your load yet, dude. Oh, but we've been waiting since the emails. <laughs> we've been emptying the sack since the emails. <laughs> it's going to go eventually. Uh, over at DC, sci-fi was also big. And who better than Jack Kirby to bring that to the printed page? Whilst Kirby's heart may have been with the New Gods, his best-selling and longest-running DC book was Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth. Why Commandy succeeded where other Kirby books failed is something probably best left to comic book or Kirby historians, but the comic managed to survive an impressive 59 issues, and even the loss of its creator. Commandy, the last boy on earth, is one weird comic. One I've read only, rarely, thanks to comics in my dad's collection. I recall it being a proper Kirby 70s comic. Weird visuals, wacky stuff happening on every page, and little in the way of coherence. However, it's a comic that is the definition of a cult classic. The people that love Commandy, love Commandy, stating that it is easily the best thing Kirby did at DC, and possibly, they think, the best work he did in his career. Generally considered to be based upon then-current scientific ideas, now not taken that seriously, the idea was that every few millennia or so the world would shuck off its appearance. This would cause polar shifts and worldwide floods, and it would restructure the landscape of the planet, allowing the Earth to reinvent itself. Add to this idea, to the request from DC that Kirby do something a bit like Planet of the Apes, and the result was this, the world of Commandy. The premise is thus, after the great disaster, a small tribe of humanoids gathered in a bunker called Command D, from where Commandy takes his name. At the behest of his grandfather, Commandy ventures out into the world to see if there are other survivors. 
That's pretty much it, isn't it, really, for a premise? Do you remember Command D? Do you want to shut up? <laughs> That's a callback to a, a long time ago, isn't it? See how many people remember that one. <laughs> the cover to issue one, which is cover dated November 1972, is a very definite Planet of the Apes homage, or rip-off, if you prefer. <laughs> Command the old blonde 70s flowing tresses and cut-off Daisy Dukes sails past the submerged Statue of Liberty in a life raft, paddling against the furious waves. Manhattan, located behind him, also looks pretty waterlogged. First DC issue, the cover stamp states, which kind of implies there was a command he published at other companies. Beasts that act like men, men who act like beasts, see the world of Commandy, the last boy on Earth. More copy runs, making this sound like an old Republic serial. A new sensational DC Jack Kirby blockbuster! Was Kirby the first creator to get a cover credit like that? I think so. I don't recall anyone getting their name on the cover like that before. Well, he was big in every comic company, wasn't he? Yeah, he's, he was Jack Kirby, wasn't he? Uh, it's very eye-catching. It's a very, very good cover. It's post-apocalyptic, you know, ruined landmarks of our society are always eye-catching, aren't they? Yeah. It's why so many films destroy popular landscapes, because it'll catch the attention. The colouring, in particular, is very good. It's good through the entire issue, this mm. reprint. Yeah, it's an excellent cover. Was this focused as an advert for Final Crisis in the back of it? Uh, yeah, I presume this was... We had to track down a digital copy of this, because I did look for... Uh, I was going to buy the paperback, like I've got Jack Kirby's Fourth World, and it's only available as a hardcover archive that is now out of print... Yeah. And it was like 50, 60 quid. And I thought, the, 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 those reprints are actually good because you've got the OMAC one, haven't you? Mm. Yeah, I've got the OMAC. I've got all four of the Fourth World Omnibus. And at some point, I did plan on getting the two Commandy volumes. Have they done two? Yeah, because he, he did this for about 30 odd issues, I think. Right. Uh, simply titled The Last Boy on Earth, it was written and pencilled by Jack Kirby and inked and lettered by Mike Royer. Apparently, it was coloured by furries. Because <laughs> no no colorist is credited. Commandy sails down what was once the Hudson River, stunned that the New York of legend is now nothing but a flooded wasteland. As he journeys downstream, he calls to survivors on the riverside, but scared of his cries of welcome, they flee. He returns to his bunker, but upon arrival, an explosion tells Commandy his booby traps have been tripped by armed looters. These men have plagued he and his grandfather before, but never before has his grandfather been alone. Inside the bunker, Commandy sees his grandfather dead and looters in his home. He opens fire and kills the first looter, but a second looter stuns Commandy when he sees his face, that of a wolf. The radiation outside has mutated the animal so that it walks like a biped and talks like a man, but refers to Commandy as an animal. They fight, and the wolf creature gains the upper hand, but Commandy knows the territory. He lures the wolf after him, and when the creature stands in a pool of gathering water, Commandy drops a live wire to the floor from the power generators above, electrocuting the wolf. Commandy decides to let his grandfather rest in peace, gathers some supplies, and heads out into the unknown. Stealing the looter's vehicle, he cruises the New Jersey turnpike, but sees a cavalry charge. Instead of keeping going, which is what a sensible person would do, Commandy pulls over and witnesses the battle between leopards and tigers, a battle in which the tigers are gaining the upper hand. Commandy prevents a leopard sniper killing the tiger leader, Caesar, and is rewarded by being captured and thrown in a cell. In that cell, Commandy refuses to eat the slop provided by the overlord tigers and is singled out for special treatment by Caesar. He is spruced up and taken from his cell to Caesar's celebrations, where they honour the great atomic warhead. 
Commandy would rather die than live as a pet, and he seizes a laser rod, which he points at the warhead, hoping to detonate it. He is seized by Dr. Canis, a talking bipedal dog, and the respected scientist in these here parts. He recognises Commandy's struggle and asks Caesar if Commandy can be placed in his custody. Caesar agrees, and Commandy is taken to Canis's labs, where in a secret laboratory, Commandy is introduced to a man who glows with radioactive power, contained only by an old spacesuit. His name is Ben Boxer, and along with Commandy, they are the last surviving humans. That aren't all feral. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I missed that, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> the last surviving humans that are all feral. Is that better? <laughs> it's better, yeah. Uh, does that work? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the art throughout this issue is some of the best I've ever seen from Kirby. Whilst I will always have a soft spot for Kirby's FF with Joe Sinnott doing the inks, Mike Royer's work in this and in the New Gods issues I've looked at make Kirby look like Kirby. And it's all the better for it. The two-page splash, particularly of Commandy sailing through the flooded New York is one of the best pieces of Kirby art that I think I've ever seen. Yeah, the art on this is great. It's fantastic stuff. Mm. Absolutely magnificent. Yeah, You could easily look at that and say it's Planet of the Apes, but it's a lot bigger than that image. Yeah. I mean, yeah, certainly the the double-page splash is the Statue of Liberty covered up to a, a midriff in water and New York behind is, is likewise flooded and there's the Statue of Liberty there as well I think is the Statue of Liberty really that close to New York I was, well I was I was going to say that to you, but are they floating in some way are they bobbing but they're made of rock so that's not really maybe the, the statues moved along a bit possibly I mean you don't know it could just be artistic license which I'm willing to give him because it's just so fantastic Commandy's like a small figure in a life raft very tiny on the page compared to the landmark of the Statue of Liberty. And the clouds are rolling in, they're all dark. And the water's cascading around. It's not a still water, is it? Mm. It's obviously very churning and very busy. It's just absolutely gorgeous. I have changed my mind if I could own one piece of Kirby artwork, it'd be that. Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. Uh, I can't confirm this, but it seems that coverings have been added to the female members of the tribe on page four when Commandy encounters them. Do you not think? That doesn't look like it was original art. It's just colour, yeah. It does look like um, they've added a bra to the women for some reason. This was a very weird scene. Do you yeah. not think? Well, once once he gets back and his granddad's dead, and he never actually explains what he was doing outside. No, he doesn't, does he? My granddad used to tell me stories about this. So what I got from the opening was that you know, he, his granddad had died and he'd move on and explore to see all the stories he'd been told. But no, he goes back. Yeah, that is actually, you know, I didn't, I didn't consider that. But you're absolutely right, it doesn't explain. All it says is, can this be the world granddad sent me to the surface to reclaim? So, is the implication that his granddad sent him out to see what the outside world is like and he'd never been before? I guess. Oh, you know, he's gone out to try and reclaim it. The humans have buggered off. He's gone back to his ground and said, right, I've got it. They've all run away. <laughs> They've all run away. That this land is ours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, my, my taking it, it's implied all mankind was wiped out in the great disaster. Yeah. Yet we instantly see on page four that this is not true. There are humans left alive. I mean, like you said, they're all feral, mm. but they're still there. There's yeah. still a human... It's like Planet of the Apes. There is still a human population, even though the apes have risen to dominance. Yeah. But the implication that was given on the first two pages is mankind has been wiped out. 
And if that was true, the Ben Boxer reveal at the end may have been a little more dramatic. Yeah. If he, he, Commandy really did think he was the last boy alive. Because he clearly isn't the last boy alive, because there's people here. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could argue he's the youngest person to still be alive. Hmm. Possibly. I mean, we don't know if that's true. Because this is all we've read at this point. But later issues may follow up on it. Like I say, we've not read any more of this, so it is possible. I did like that when Commandy returns back to Command D, he sees the thing that's killed his grandfather and just shoots him. Yeah. He don't waste any time with preamble. He doesn't try and bargain with him. He shoots him dead. I like how he runs past the dead guys as well, just ignoring them. Yeah, it's like, well, that's not what he's interested in. He's getting back to his granddad, isn't he? Mm. But, yeah, he well, presumably he's going to be like a kid raised on Facebook and iPads. He doesn't know any social etiquette. Yeah. So, you just kill granddad, bang. <laughs> I know, and as far as he's concerned, he's not bothered, is he? He's invaded, he's, it's a home invasion, yeah. so he's allowed to shoot him. Command D looks an awful lot different from what I've seen in like Final Crisis. Um, why did they bring Command D back in Final Crisis? Command D was quite important, yeah. Because uh, it's in Bluthaven. Oh, so it is? Yeah. Bluthaven, yeah. Bluthaven. Right, yes. Well, see, Command D here is just an underground structure that looks a bit of a mess. Well, from what I got of it, because he goes past Command A, was it one big underground structure that had an alphabet of sections? Yeah, Command A, Command B, Command D. I mean, it does say the USA something, so is it an Air Force? Is that an F? Is it US, a United States Air Force base or something? Um, well, there's the star and strike. Yeah, because there is a, a the, the symbol that you get on an aeroplane, so the implication there it is, it is some kind of military underground bunker. So maybe it's, um, a, a bunker for when the nuclear disaster hit. So how did he and his grandfather end up in there? And his grandfather, was his grandfather a young man when this happened? And was everyone else and gone? So was everyone else gone? Was his grandmother? Was his mum? Was his dad? Yeah. Why are grandfather and commander the only ones left alive? Mm. What's happened in the interim? Because they must have all got to this underground bunker. Yeah. And it's implied that Commandy was born there, because when, he, when he's sailing around at the beginning, he's surprised by what he's seeing. Yeah, he's grown That up New York is flooded. He's like, oh, right, is this what I'm supposed to be saving? Mm. So he's grown up in the bunker. So where's his mum and his dad? Maybe they died. <laughs> well, they just—they did a Padme. Yeah. They're not convenient. They're not convenient for the story. They're just going to die because I say so. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, there's a lovely full page reveal of, of the wolf creature, which Kirby does brilliantly. It's a cliffhanger ending. Car- Mandy sees him before we do. Yeah. And then when you turn the page, the wolf creature's there. And given that the humans of this time seem to communicate with grunts, I did find it quite odd that the wolf spoke English. Mm. But on the one hand, that's a standard trope of sci-fi stories at this point, but who taught him English? The rest of the wolves. The rest of the wolves. So, see, that's where it falls down. If humans are now only grunting... Well, it's like... When, when, when <laughs> but like Planet of the Apes, how did the apes learn English? Well, have you ever had that thought with, like, you know, the cats going around, do the cats think, and do the cats think in meows... Or in English. Well, I would imagine they're thinking meows. They're thinking their own language. <laughs> I would imagine. But... Because that's like saying, do, do, do foreign countries, do Italians think in Italian? Of course they do. But animals <laughs> can understand what you're saying. Yes. So they understand our language. Yeah, they're like Chewbacca. So maybe the, the wolves and that have heard us. What, and just mimicked us? Yeah. From over generations, and then through the subjugation of the human race, through the animals... 
the human race have, I don't know, maybe the animals have operated and removed vocal cords because they don't want us speaking. Yeah. So ultimately throughout the generations, but it's not been many generations if we're led to assume that grandfather lived above Earth at some point. Yeah. So this is only two generations down the line. So that's only, what, 40 years, maybe 50? That's not long enough for evolution to breed out vocal cords. Are we thinking too much about this, do you think? Maybe the radiation. Very possibly, yeah, that's, the, that's a good explanation. Command is not affected because he was in the bunker. Oh, they all went crazy. Like the Lovecraft story where he's, he's hunted in the cave and it turns out there was a, just a crazy guy hunting him. Right, alright, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go with the radiation explanation. That's mm. a, a very good Because no I price. did like that plot twist that it was animals hunting humans. I mean, yeah, it's Planet of the Apes, but it's still it was still a pretty cool plot twist. Yeah, it was handled very well. Yeah, wasn't it? It's uh, that's the thing. You can you can excuse them starting in a place of unoriginality because then it's where is it going to go from here? Mm. Rather than and they actually asked him do Planet of the Apes. Yeah, so it's not Kirby's fault that it's there's a bit of Planet of the Apes in it. But then you carry on reading it and it's gone from Planet of the Apes to the second one be, be beneath. Yeah, the it goes to the beneath Apes. the Planet of the Apes with them all worshiping the bomb, yeah. isn't it? And I uh, see. When did this come out? Seventy what? Seventy two? Did we say? Mm. So, 72, they'd had the sequel to come out to Planet of the Apes at that point, hadn't they? Planet of the Apes is 69. Right. Or 68, I think. 68, 69. Which would mean that the sequel was 70, 71. Yeah. So, yeah, beneath the Planet of the Apes had been out at this point. So, yeah, that is very... That's very much the sequel. That's, you know... Whatever. All right, fair enough. I've said before, when we've done Fantastic Cast, Kirby's incapable of drawing a boring panel at this point. And you can like or not like his actual artwork because, you know, art is in the eye of the beholder. But at least appreciate he's never boring, is he? Yeah. Even when it's panels of people just standing there, the dramatic people standing there. They're not stood there posing. Yeah, it's not Jim Lee dramatic. Yeah, it's not Jim Lee posing. They're actually doing stuff. So it's very, very clever. Commandy gets out. Does he kill the wolf? No, he just runs away, doesn't he? No, he, no, does. no, he electrocutes him, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he kills the wolf. There's some cool Kirby Crackle as well. With the apps and brilliant Kirby Crackle as he, as he electrocutes the wolf creature. Bit stupid of him going into water where there was a live wire, but <laughs> maybe he doesn't know about electricity, I don't know. Commandy goes out and takes his vehicle, which I've no idea what it is. But it looks pretty neat. Well, it's a Kirby vehicle, so it looks pretty neat. I, I do wonder where the wolves are getting the petrol from. Dumb. <laughs> They go around and say, ah, there's a car here, yeah, get the straw in the bucket. So they've spent the past 50 years going round, siphoning off diesel and petrol and gas from other vehicles. Or oh, maybe it's a water-powered car. <laughs> maybe they've discovered hydrogen power. Yeah, yeah. These wolves are clever creatures. They are. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I, I quite like how it's all in real-world places that are destroyed, like the New Jersey Turnpike, though. Yeah, it is. It does all have a, a real-world location feel. It's actually really cool. I didn't think he was terribly smart getting out of the vehicle. <laughs> uh, I was a bit dumb. They're on foot. You're in a truck. Yeah, I think I see a way out here. <laughs> um, and, I mean, the we ending we've mentioned is very beneath the planet of the apes but could also be Kirby's commentary on mankind's fascination with war. Yeah. That we worship weapons like that. Well, with all the radiation as well, it was a very definite anti 
nuclear warfare message. Yeah, well, Kirby, despite having fought in World War Two and being a very big advocate of America entering the war, was quite anti-war. Yeah. In that way that only people who actually have fought in war can be. Mm. So, yeah, so I got that as well. So I got that there was an anti-war thing to it. Uh, it's also, the issue itself is designed to give writers of today's comics a headache by how much they've actually crammed into this one issue. Kirby introduces the world of Commander, his backstory, the New World Order, a perilous situation, the solution to that perilous situation, another possibly perilous situation, and a twist ending in 23 pages. There's, like, enough stuff here for 12 issues of a current comic. Yeah. And in some ways, that would be a good thing, because it would allow some of the ideas to breathe and be fleshed out a bit, because the upshot of this is that everything is introduced in a very scattershot manner, and some things aren't really paid off, like the other humans on the riverbank in the early part of the story, and other developments are just wiped away quickly. Commandy losing his grandfather is just over with and it's, it's not like he seems to feel any guilt about this like in a Peter Parker Uncle Ben kind of way there's no angst it oh if only I hadn't gone out yeah. he'd still be alive stuff is there it's like oh granddad's dead oh well <laughs> never mind moving on I've got all this world to yeah and he, he gets on with his life I mean the art particularly the two page spread we've already mentioned is some of the best I've ever seen from Jack Kirby and the fast paced nature of the script does mean that on first blush you do overlook some silly things, like we mentioned Kamindi getting out of the truck yeah. to watch the fight, and then interfering with it. Mm. Interfering with the sniper who's going to shoot at Caesar. He should have just carried on driving. Yeah. But if he'd done that, we'd have had no issue. So I would have liked a better reason for him getting out of the truck and watching, like maybe he got hit with an arrow or something and it popped his tyre, that kind of thing. Yeah. Rather than just going, oh, I think I'll get out in the middle of this fight and watch what's going on. <laughs> And I see a fight between leopards and wolves. I'm putting my foot on the accelerator pedal and I'm in the hell out of dodge. Well, was it not maybe that if he stayed in the car they'd have seen him and chased him? Yeah, but like you said, I see a way out of this. There are horses. Yeah, he's in a car. Horses can outrun cars sometimes. No, they cannot. What films have you been watching, Reese? Although in films, humans can outrun cars. Yeah, so a car that is powered on water... You don't know that's what it's powered on. What else is it powered on? It's powered on... Nuclear <laughs> energy, because the animals seem to be powered by radiation. It's powered on MacGuffinness. <laughs> that's what it's powered on. The MacGyver Mobile. The MacGyver Mobile, yeah. It runs on spit, polish and chewing gum. <laughs> because MacGyver built it, yes. The, the downside of it, for me, was that from a 21st century perspective, this is very derivative. It's the same thing that plagued Deathlock last time. I mean, Planet of the Apes is the obvious touchstone, and beneath the Planet of the Apes, with, with the protagonist worshipping the bomb. This series prefigures Logan's run with the movie, and Zardoz, which it's quite similar to, but Commandy educating himself and then heading out into the world is similar to any number of science fiction stories, and the destruction of notable landmarks dates all the way back to War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, which is not to say that this was bad. I think we've got another Deathlock situation on our hands here where the, the, the story in and of itself is very entertaining. It's not its fault that the years since this, it's been strip-mined so much by other writers. You know, my problem with it was, I thought it still held up, but it had such a strong opening but went downhill when he got caught. The plot twist that there was another guy with nuclear superpowers, just I didn't care for it much. It wasn't 
a strong ending as the opening was. So you'd have just preferred him wandering around the planet and getting into different messes every week. Yeah. But we don't know that's not what happens. Yes. Yeah. I, I read a couple of Commandies of our Peters when I was a kid, but I'd be damned if I remember him. Because hmm. he had a couple, he had Commandy, he had Forever People as well, didn't he? he had some yeah. of them. He has, he, forever, some, he has the Forever First People number that, one, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. And he, he's got a couple of Mr. Miracle and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So I read them when I was little. Keeping them in his, his, his plastic wallets. In his wallets. little plastic wallets. You have to get him some proper bags, won't we? Yeah, we we will, should yeah. tack him some comic bags <laughs> and say, put your Forever People number one in there. Trust us. Yeah, it's, it's better for you. I mean, yeah, it's a very entertaining comic featuring both good and bad of this era of comics. Ideas are just chucked out and not really explored. And it's hard to see what the series itself is going to actually be about, isn't it? Yeah. Is it going to be him trying to escape from this? Or is this just a temporary situation and then he's going to get away and him and Bob Boxer are going to wander around like Kane from Kung Fu? And yeah, it would have been a cool one if they just get in the water-powered car and just drive, <laughs> just drive off at the end. Being pursued by the wolf man. Yeah, going from settlement going to from settlement. settlement. Yeah, to like it is Mad Max. Yeah, Mad Max versus the Incredible Hulk meets the Fugitive. <laughs> uh, given this was produced in 1972... Like we say, it's probable a lot of the derivative elements weren't that derivative when it was originally made. Hmm. So we're trying not to hold that against it, especially as apparently Kirby came up with the basic commandy concept in the late 1950s. Yeah. But I, I, I can't say it really held up beyond the initial opening. The opening was fantastic. Yeah. And like you, I think it kind of slumped in the middle it, it's similar to to Logan's Run the aforementioned Logan's Run and, and the Omega Man it yeah. reminded me an awful lot of Charlton Heston's The Omega Man it, they're still fun entertaining movies but there's no escaping that they were made in the 70s and it's the same with this it's still fun and it's still a good read and the art's magnificent but there's no getting away from the fact this is a 70s comic yeah, and all the good and bad that that entails still the elements that we've addressed they may be followed up in future issues because there's certainly enough to play with here for a good series. So, was it influential? I, I don't know. Because it's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi thing, of which there have been many but post-apocalyptic sci-fi things. The commander character in story is still... Or was still around, anyway. Yeah, but the, the Kirby concepts have been incredibly beneficial to DC Comics as a whole, not just Commandy on its well, own. Yeah, yeah, Final Crisis. Yeah, it's okay. entirely based on his concept, yeah. isn't it? Mm. And like we've said before, the 90s Superman books borrowed heavily from Kirby's Jimmy Olsen run. Mm. So, Well, Jimmy Olsen was what started it all, really. Yeah, well, so I suppose what we're saying then is, as a whole, Kirby stuff has been incredibly influential on DC Comics going forward. Kirby's not necessarily just Commandy. Kirby was influential on all comics, really. Even Marvel is still using Kirby ideas. Yeah. So, all right, then. We'll go with a yes, then. Yeah. <laughs> Just because it's Kirby. Um, does it hold up? I uh, Yeah. I think it does in the same way that all the stories it's influenced by still hold up. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard one. It's... No one's going to think this wasn't made in the 70s. Yeah. It is one of those futuristic things that's dated. It's like Jerry Anderson's UFO, mm. or like I said, like the Omega Man. There's no getting away from the fact the Omega Man was made in the 70s. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not cool. Doesn't mean it's not a great film. Mm. And I think it's the same with this. I, I, I don't know that you would give this to anyone nowadays who wasn't steeped in comics lore 
But by the same token, you may give this to somebody like a ten-year-old kid who doesn't know anything about comics, and they'd probably lap it up. Yeah. Go on, we'll go with yes then. And suddenly those kids are terrified by the pet dog. Yeah, which would be awesome. (laughs) If we can terrify kids, that's a good day, as far as I'm (laughs) concerned. Alright, we'll go with it's very influential and it holds up. Yes. Because it's Kirby. Mm -hmm. So, I'm I'm happy with that. Yeah, alright. Do you you remember how this show started and I really didn't like Kirby? Yeah. Has this show just been me... Slowly learning that his influence influences all of the things that you actually like and you maturing enough to realise that actually none of this stuff that I like would exist without this guy. It's not even that though, it was the fourth world stuff is so good. I still think his art is hit and miss, especially the early FF stuff. It's not in that. No it's not, but the fourth world and DC stuff are so good. Do you think that's Mike Royer making Kirby look like Kirby? No, it's the stories as well. Right. You could have any artist working on the fourth world, and any it wouldn't be artist. it wouldn't be as good. But it's it, the story would certainly be just as strong. Right. Oh well, that's if, if nothing else, we've made a Kirby fan <laughs> out of you. Which is, it's, uh, I think that's fair enough. Not exactly science fiction, but most definitely of a supernatural bent. Marvel Spotlight issue 5, cover dated August 1972, featured the debut of Johnny Blaze, the Ghost Rider. The cover of his first appearances around the time when Marvel had the regular cover art squashed into a box. To be fair, the actual art is pretty good, helped out by the fact that the Ghost Rider is the coolest visual in comics. The flaming skull, the leather biker suit and the roaring motorcycle all add up to a good look character, one about which I know bugger all. Never read Ghost Rider in my life. Anyway, this cover by Mike Plug has Ghost Rider zooming over the heads of various lowlifes and ne'er-do-wells, shooting guns and generally looking terrified that the man with his head on fire seems to be targeting them like he's going to eat their children. <laughs> the cover copy is rampant. Is he alive or dead? It's a safe bet. It's one of the two. <laughs> a legend is born. I wouldn't quite go that far. And the most supernatural superhero of all. I'm loath to call him a superhero, to be honest, but it does what a cover is supposed to do, which is entice the reader in. What did you think of that cover, young Michael? The visual's cool, but... Yes, Ghost Rider has a cool visual. The logo is fantastic. Yeah. The corner box is great. That's a a Harley Davidson advert. Yeah, pretty much. It's a Harley Davidson advert. And and it is the entire issue, actually. It would make you pick up this comic, would it not? Yeah. And then you'd want your money back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bury that lead. We've read some bad comics throughout the show. We have read some bad comics. I think this may be one of the baddest. (laughs) But let's not... We'll get them. I I like how you get from that logo on the cover and get to that wacky... The one on the first page of the comic and it's crap. groovy logo. It is very groovy ghoulies, isn't it? Yeah, the logo on the actual cover of the comic is magnificent. The logo on page one is crap. It's a shame because the rest of that page is so cool. Yeah, the art, the art on that page is great. It's, it's a shame the rest of the story isn't. Yeah, well, it's the the rain's lashing down. Ghost Rider rides at you in the panels, slowly coming closer and closer before you get a full page panel shot of him, which is great. Mm. Absolutely magnificent splash page. Anyway, I'll do the synopsis and then we'll we'll tell you why we thought this was crap. <laughs> Ghost Rider was edited by Stan Lee. Why the hell does Stan get credited first? 
Conceived and written by Gary Friedrich and drawn by Mike Plug, lettered by John Costa and aided and abetted by Roy Thomas. A mysterious figure tours through the streets of New York on his Harley Davidson, his head aflame, his mind somewhere else, which may explain why this new hero completely ignores the gunning down of a man in the street. Not his problem, I guess. It ends up being his problem when the gunmen, afraid the motorcyclist with the burning head can identify them, take after him. Ghost Rider ditches them with some hellfire and damnation and flees, taking refuge in a room that appears around him. Honest, the art makes no effort to explain where this room comes from. One minute he stood in an alley next to his bike, the next in a room. Maybe supernatural building powers are part of the deal. And what is this deal? Well, lovely listener, all will become apparent as Johnny Blaze reappears from underneath the blazing skull and kindly informs us of his backstory. She's very generous of it. <laughs> See, when Johnny was a kid, his father, a daring motorcycle daredevil, was killed and the owner of the motorcycle stunt show, Crash Simpson, adopts <laughs> Johnny as his own son. I don't know about you, but calling yourself Crash in the Daredevil cycling profession doesn't instill confidence. <laughs> What's your name, Crash? Isn't crashing what you don't want to do? Maybe it's him being a Daredevil and stirring face oh. in the eyes. Stirring, stirring his face in the eyes. <laughs> stirring. Stirring it, death in the face. Yes, and then running and hiding and waiting for it to pass. <laughs> I think that's what you meant. Anyway, Johnny grows up with Crash Bandicoot. Sorry, <laughs> And his daughter, Roxanne, and his wife, who isn't important and thus dies a few days later, <laughs> whilst checking Johnny's okay when a motorcycle stunt goes wrong and a bike blows up in her face. <laughs> On a deathbed, she survives this, surprisingly, and makes Johnny swear to never ride in a stunt show. Why? Who the hell knows? She doesn't seem to have any problem with her birth daughter dabbling in daredevilry, but she's her adoptive son? Forget about she's it. She's never crashed before. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. Anyway, Mrs. Simpson's death turns Crash into a raving asshole who accuses Johnny of being yellow for not riding. <laughs> Roxanne also thinks Johnny is a coward, but Johnny ain't no coward, see? And late at night, he practices riding when no one is around. Roxanne sees him, and because of her daddy issues, he's really turned turned off and the per kiss and cuddle and probably do other stuff brother and sister are not supposed to do sometimes later the Crash Bandicoot stunt spectacular lands a gig at Madison Square Garden but Crash says the doc has given him three weeks to live he may never get to live his dream Crash's illness hasn't made him any less of an asshole though and in front of Johnny and Roxanne he wishes he had a son to take over for him insulting both his daughter and his adoptive son in one breath excellent work Crash imagine what an asshole you could be if you really tried Roxanne, however, isn't insulted by her father's rampant sexism. No, her daddy issues are so strong, she accuses <laughs> Johnny of cowardice for keeping his word to the mother. Johnny in no way behaves irrationally at this point. He doesn't pick up one of them books on Satanism, he just happens to have <laughs> lying around. He doesn't summon the Lord of Hell to do his bidding and he doesn't sell his soul to save the crotchety old man who's been a jerk to him for most of his life. Oh no, wait, that's exactly what he does. Johnny asks Peter Fond to spur Crash from the deadly disease that is killing him and in return he will serve him faithfully throughout all eternity. I really didn't understand how Johnny thought this was going to go well. 
Three weeks later, Crash Bandicoot is determined <laughs> to <laughs> <laughs> to <laughs> wind up time. Yes, that's what the name Three weeks later, Crash Bandicoot is determined to go out in a blaze of glory and has arranged the Madison Square Garden gig be his attempt to leap over 22 cars. Crash ignores his daughter, but calls Johnny a gutless kid again just to affirm his alcoholicness. <laughs> and, Kel surprise, he's killed in the attempted jump. Against all common sense and numerous health and safety regulations, the show goes on after Crash has just been killed in front of the audience's eyes and Johnny performs the stunt. Roxanne dumps him for doing the stunt, even though she's just spent most of this book either shagging him or accusing him of cowardice for not doing the stunt. I think Roxanne is a cupid stunt. Later, Bono shows up again and says, I want your soul. And Johnny says, but you double-crossed me. And the devil says, duh. Before his soul can be claimed, Roxanne comes back, presumably for some brotherly love, and combats the devil with the knowledge gleaned from all those books on Satanism Johnny just had lying around. I don't know what it says about this family that books about Satanism are just in the family library. And no one thinks that that's a bit odd. However, the next night, Johnny's head blazes with fire and a ghost rider is born. By day, he is Johnny Blaze. By night, Ghost Rider. And we are sadly put off reading any more (laughs) Ghost Rider comics for eternity. That was the funniest synopsis you've ever seen. Jesus. It was the crappiest story I think I've ever had to synopsis. <laughs> if you couldn't guess, lovely listener, from the pithy synopsis, I didn't think very much of this. <laughs> really? <laughs> it felt like a series of ideas that could have been fleshed out into a decent story with more time and cur, but instead were just thrown haphazardly together with little forethought or planning, and not in the good way that Jack Kirby just throws ideas out without actually thinking them through. Yeah. It's muddled in execution, it's melodramatic as hell, which is not normally a bad thing, but here it doesn't paper over the cracks of what a whiny bunch of unappealing jerks these people are. The, the structure tries to be clever, starting in media res, but this is one instance where it doesn't work. The ending is muddled and confused as to when it becomes the present day again, rather than a flashback. But the bottom line is, this made no sense <laughs> at all. None of this Pat with the Devil stuff felt in any way organic to the story, or even plausible. Johnny asks him to spur Crash Bandicoot from the disease, <laughs> which, if I were the Devil... I would interpret as get rid of whatever he has. I mean, I don't know that you can get a disease for being an asshole, but whatever. Anyway, nowhere does he ask the devil to prevent Crash from dying, does he? Yeah. So, why does Johnny then accuse the devil of double-crossing him? He doesn't, as far as we know. To be fair, we get no indication that the devil's done anything. (laughs) He's still, apparently, three weeks later, Crash Bandicoot still thinks he's dying... So there's not been a miraculous recovery, has there? So we've no clue Beelzebub has done (laughs) what he promised he was going to do in the first place. Maybe the devil just... He's going to crash anyway. Why don't I just let him do it? Yeah, well, that's my thinking. He's probably gone, well, he's going to die because he's an asshole. That's an easy soul. Yeah, I'll just take the soul anyway. Gift, (laughs) thinks the devil. And speaking of what exactly was Johnny's curse and how does that benefit the devil? What does the devil get out of him being Ghost Rider? 
I mean, I, I didn't get that at all. He doesn't actually have Johnny's soul. Roxanne stopped him from doing that. I was just confused by this whole deal with the devil thing in terms of what it brought to the story and why the devil was even interested in it. If I remember my theology correctly, doesn't the devil only want the soul of pure of heart people? Johnny's not pure of heart. He's shagging his adopted sister. <laughs> he just whines all the way. You know, his adopted sister, he seems to have... He seems to know everything, but doesn't actually want to know it. Yeah. And th- three times in the issue, does she burst the door and says, "Of course, I knew it all along, but didn't want to." <laughs> you, what? You know, even even for the seventies, like you point out, the, the treatment of women in this story just beggars belief. Mrs. Simpson isn't important enough to even be given a name. Yeah. She's just killed off unceremonially and rather stupidly. She runs up to a burning bike that blows up in her face. Because it's the 70s. But that's not the stupid bit. The stupid bit is that she survives long enough to be in a deathbed. (laughs) And you're like, what? Didn't that bike blow up? From our point of view, she's right near the bike. Yeah. It blows up. There's nothing left of her. Certainly not enough for her to lie in bed giving a speech. She's a crispy critter at this point. Unless, you know, she's got no arms or legs under the... She's got no face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she may not have, judging by the art. The art is pretty the bad. The art so. is, is pretty awful in that particular scene. In that particular scene? Well, all right, maybe generally, I don't know. Uh, Roxanne... Speaking of women, vacillates from daddy's girl to someone who'll shag her adopted brother, to calling him a coward when she don't get her own way, to someone who reads books on Satanism just for fun. And this, that, where did that come from? My, my personal favourite bit is when she calls him a coward for... For that, not doing the stuff. No, no, she calls him a coward for the, um, not... For, doing, for prom- keeping his promise to her dead mum, right? Yeah. And then she barges through the... After she storms out on him for keeping his promise to her dead mum, she barges back in and says, Oh, of course, I knew it all along, but, oh, I just didn't know the truth. I love you for holding up your promise to my dead mum. She's just mad as a bag of cats, isn't she? And then she just comes in, and the devil's there. She's just all chill about it. Go go away, devil. Well, that's the bit that that really got me. When Roxanne read these books on Satanism in between panels, right? Yeah. That she just found lying around. And she didn't think this was strange. If I found a stack of books on Satanism in my brother slash lover's room, <laughs> I'd be more inclined to wonder what the hell was going on <laughs> instead of just going, ah, here's a book, I'll read this. I need a little bit of light reading tonight. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. No, Roxanne studies up on this stuff. And then she's all like Max von Sydow with the devil banishments at the end. Yeah. I, I also like how Crash Bandicoot dies <laughs> in the jump. So he goes and does it anyway. I like to think he tries that jump just so he dies and doesn't have to put up with that rock sound anymore. <laughs> he doesn't have to put up with his whining daughter and his whining adoptive son. I'm not saying this story couldn't have worked. Um, if they'd established that Johnny had taken on the deal to save his mother figure, or the devil had manipulated him into doing this, or if he was even a good guy. Yeah. You know, like a Steve Rogers type tricked into it, or if his back was against the wall and there was no other choice, thanks to some machinations of the devil, then fine. That's a Marvel character, someone forced into an untenable situation, and the series would ask the question, how does he get out of this? Anything like that could have worked, but here his first recourse is deal with the devil. You know, he, 
that just came from nowhere, didn't it? Yeah. I know a way out of this. I will make a deal with the devil. Okay. Because they always end well. Yeah, they always go well for us. So, again, if he'd done it to save somebody's life, like Roxanne, I mean, worthless though she was, he may have wanted to save her. That may have worked, but Crash Bandicoot's an asshole. It was just a worthless deal to make, anyway. Yeah. And it's not like he's saving anyone decent, even at the start. When he adopts Johnny, he makes it quite clear, well, you can either come with us or go to the orphanage. (laughs) And you're like, well, gee, let me think about that. I can live with you being an asshole. I mean, we get some small lip service paid to the fact that his mum's pretty decent. But given that she appears in, what, a total of four panels, it's not like we get to know her or anything. The art, as Michael's mentioned by Mike Plug, isn't particularly appealing. We've said the first page was pretty damn good. And in fact, the opening confrontation with the thugs was alright. Even even though the guy who wants to stay undercover and not be spotted, lights up the entire <laughs> point, jumps over the guys, and creates this massive show, before then whining about it. Well, he does do a lot of whining. Did yeah. It has to be said. And it's like, oh, I'm going to try and keep a low profile, so I'm going to wear exactly the same clothes I do as Ghost Rider, driving the same bike I do. It's just one of many plot holes in a book full of logical plot holes. I mean, I always feel bad criticising art because my art looks like warmed over ass. But I, I really didn't like that. You're not a published comic artist. That's though. true. I'm not. I mean, it's serviceable. He does give Johnny the most magnificent seventy sideburns. <laughs> An asshole Bandicoot has a magnificent seventy stack. Oh yeah. So all of that's that's pretty damn good. And, you know, it doesn't get any more 70s than riffing on Evil Knievel. Mm. But the art itself is just ugly. I thought Mike Plug was supposed to be a good artist. Yeah. I don't know much about him, but I've heard his name being bandied around as if he was one of the greats. I've never heard him. I thought this was quite cack. Uh, The only thing I really took away from this is that a visually interesting character does not a decent story make. (laughs) That was what I took. Influential? Yes. Uh, You think? It's... Still around today. Well, yeah, I mean, the, and there was a flood of supernaturally themed characters at this time, some of which were heavily associated with the devil, so I presume that was a big thing in the 70s. Son of Satan. Yeah, there was Son of Satan and Satanis, the girl one who was in the black and white magazine. Was, yeah. her, was that her name, Satanis? Something like that. But anyway, yeah, there was a lot of devil related characters. I don't know if this was a reaction to Ghost Rider specifically, or Ghost Rider was just riding the crest of a wave, but. Oof, yeah, I suppose you're right. He is still around, isn't he? They just relaunched him again, but this time he's driving a muscle car. Yeah. Instead of a motorbike. Which looks pretty cool. It does, and so... as much as I dislike those movies, the Ghost Rider movies are far better than this was. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, see, I could see a writer like Garth Ennis doing something with this concept if he was allowed to reboot it from the ground up, but... Didn't he do it with a Ghost Rider? I did, he did do a Ghost Rider series, but we've never read it, have we? We have it, though. We have it in one of those big hatchet graphic novels, so one day maybe we'll read it. Yeah. And see what happens. But no, no. Do I need to ask you what you thought of it? I'd, I'd say it was worth reading it just to hear your synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth me going through the page. As I was reading it, I'm t- I read it, because I always read it, and then I write up the yeah. synopsis. And I'm reading it and going, and I'm typing it up, and I just find myself typing up pithy. Yeah. And a couple of times I deleted it, and I thought, no, no, the synopsis are just a straight synopsis. We'll never tear it apart in the synopsis. Yeah. And I just found I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't write that crap up and not go, this makes no <laughs> sense. 
So, yeah, anyway. Good choice, though. Yeah, yeah. With Ghost Rider. <laughs> you, you do tell you you pick the issues before you read them. Yeah, yeah. well, see, in this case, he's an influential character. And I, I thought, well, go on, we'll give him a go. Mm. And it, I'll be honest with you, we didn't have real time to swap him out. There's a part of me that would have we swapped him out. it another week. Yeah, but I, I, I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. And I'd already written it at that point. I thought, oh, screw it, leave it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Next time, it's Horror Week. As well, those if 70 this week was horrifically <laughs> bad enough. Touche. <laughs> As those 70s shows comes to a close. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's quite sad, but it's the last 70s one next week. Tomb of Dracula, issue 25. Swamp Thing, issue 1. And the first appearance of Man-Thing in Savage Tales, issue 1. So we won't be waving our giant-sized <laughs> Man-Thing at you next week, because it's uh, a Savage Tales issue. We hope you enjoyed this week. I had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> Sometimes the worst comics make the best episodes. Yeah. It's just the way it works. So we'll see you next week, if you can join us. We hope you will. Thank you very much. Good night. used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs> <laughs>